You're listening to the Inbound Logistics Podcast with today's guest, Brian Burke, Vice President of Marketing for Seco Logistics. Expanding a retail enterprise into e-commerce is no small feat. Expanding it globally on an omni-channel supply chain scale requires consideration for everything from simply speaking the language to currency conversion for culture. Brian Burke, VP of Marketing for Seco Logistics, offers some of his insights into what businesses should prepare for if they're thinking of moving beyond their borders and whether or not pizza delivery is about to be revolutionized. On the phone with me today is Brian Burke, Vice President of Marketing for Seco Logistics. Brian, thank you so much for taking some time out to sit and talk with us today. Pleasure to be here. Brian, Seco Logistics is marketed as a uh, global solutions provider for the supply chain industry. How did you get involved in the industry in the first place? That's a great question. Uh, I got involved in the supply chain industry initially by studying uh, economics and uh, international business in college. You you get exposure to uh, global trade just from a macro level, and it always interested me to actually understand truly how the global economy works. And there's no better way to get that type of education and experience than working for a global logistics company. So uh, Seco Logistics was one of the uh, first companies I talked to right out of college uh, over uh, 12 years ago, and uh, I've been working at uh, one other company since, but then came back and uh, uh, back here at Seco Logistics. But it's uh, been a natural progression, I think, from the interest and study uh, of really how the global economy works, how global trade ultimately works and and benefits countries all around the world. But getting into the nitty-gritty details is that much more interesting. And and, and what people told me when I first started in the industry and what seems to be still true today, in fact, probably more so now than ever, is that this industry continues to evolve and change at probably a a quickening pace to the point where it seems like you're always learning something new uh, every day. It's rewarding from that perspective as well, and I think it keeps a lot of folks uh, staying within the industry. Yeah, speaking of that change and that evolution, where do you hope the industry goes, and what about your place in that development? Are you excited for what you see? Are there things that you hope to see? I I think that I'm probably, like a lot of others, both frightened as well as excited for, for the future because the only, I think, constant in the past five to ten years has really been the rapid pace of change. Global supply chains uh, really established themselves 30, 40 years ago as markets opened up around the world. You know, you started to get global sourcing patterns and purchasing from certain countries, distribution to other countries. But as, as kind of these trade barriers began to be removed from various countries throughout the world, you started to see in a, you know, an increase in a steady increase in global trade. You know, and this has been a positive trend that's had a positive effect on uh, on a lot of countries and a lot of economies and overall uh, on the global economy. But, uh, you know, what you see, I think, in the past 10 years uh, as it relates to e-commerce, and then I'd say probably in the past couple of years as it relates to kind of these marketplaces out there that are offering next day, same day, and in some cases, uh, shipping within two hours. It's changing the dynamic of of really any equation involved in supply chain modeling uh, and understanding, you know, how how to budget for and forecast for uh, your goods, getting your goods to market, getting your goods in front of 
and, and to your consumers' uh, uh, homes or on the shelves. Uh, all these equations and assumptions are, are really being turned upside down and uh, you know on their heads. You, you have technology out there as well that seems to be really uh, doing a really good job of uh, uh, automating some uh, functions and processes that were manual uh, only even only a couple of years ago. But uh, you know, and as with any technology, uh, there's the apprehension of you know what what well, what's next. But uh, at least from what I've seen in, uh, in my short time in the industry is it seems to actually uh, do nothing but open up opportunities for more innovation, for providing more value uh, within the supply chain, and uh, for, for, for the ability to, to do even more. And I'll give you an example. People talk about the Internet of Things, uh, and, and what really interests me from a supply chain perspective is when you've got these smart devices that are really getting out there in the market, um, from appliances to consumer electronics, uh, and even kind of some more ubiquitous household items that are uh, beginning to get and stay wired uh, and online uh, at all times, or at the very least intermittently, you have uh, lots of units out there that can actually communicate inherently back to uh, an ERP system or, or a TMS system, for example, when they might be low on, let's say it's a printer, and it will automatically notify the, the home company that it's low, and then an order will be placed um, automatically on your behalf to the point where you don't have to buy any extra expensive toner. And if you multiply that by millions, you know, for large companies that with large printing presses, you know, the implications from a cost-saving standpoint uh, are huge, uh, are absolutely huge. And all that is doing, uh, all that technology is doing is making a more efficient supply chain and getting and eliminating the waste in a supply chain. And it's that type of innovation and change that at one point can seem uh, both frightening and absolutely amazing at the same time. To get from the starting point to, to that level of efficiency, there's a lot of steps in there. What should a company be focusing on when they're going to try to develop that omni-channel expansion strategy? You know, when, they're, when any retailer, and, and every one of, you know, every retailer is uh, reevaluating, uh, I think, probably everything, just as uh, every logistics company out there is reevaluating everything, and we're, we're, we're all in business to make money, right, and to provide value to our customers in doing so and that may be changing very rapidly and and defining what value is today versus what it was 10 years ago is very different in the retail world. Uh, the perfect example is this and, and the link to supply chain and logistics. 10 years ago there's the saying that everyone was in the home delivery business. We just didn't know it yet because we were we were going to the store and, and buying goods and putting them in our cars or taking them onto the train and uh, lugging them all the way back to our house on our own. And, you know, that seems in some cases uh, almost antiquated depending on the types of products you're buying. The world of e-commerce has really opened up the expectation that the goods will come to me. Uh, and if you look at it, you know, from a distribution perspective, now you're, you're pushing, you know, a lot of that capacity back into the market from an outsourced perspective. So it's no longer people voluntarily going to the store to pick up the items to voluntarily take them back home. There's an expectation 
that you as a retailer are going to be able to provide a delivery service that matches those of the marketplaces that are out there that can either do next day, second day, same day, or, or even better for any retailer that's looking at an omni-channel expansion strategy. They have to, first and foremost, really look at where's the value that they provide for their customers. What is the brand promise that they will look to execute on no matter what? And is it quality? Is it uh, something related to fashion that can change very quickly, either with the season or with the trend? Is it something that's more of a durable good? where patience may be more of a virtue? Is it an item that could have a cachet or demand outside of the United States? Because, you know, from, from the perspective of, of each retailer, no, no one formula is the same. It all has to do with uh, how much they want to protect their brand and defining what that brand promise is and how to go to market with uh, providing value for their customers. So, for example, when looking at it from an omni-channel logistics expansion standpoint, is it understanding that they do want to open up new channels? And does that new channel uh, include a marketplace? Does it include pop-up stores? Does it include a store within a store? Partnerships with other retailers? Does it include uh, expanding uh, into new markets, into new countries? These are all basically opening up new channels but as we've seen with some retailers, you can expand too fast and you can have the cost structure and the implications related to things like next day shipping catch up to you. Um, you know, at the same time, you, you also see uh, some retailers expand and, and look at, you know, lots of different channels and it dilutes the brand and it dilutes the brand equity depending on the channel partners that they've opted uh, to go with. And you see some retailers that actually pull back they pull back the channels that they distribute their product in, whether it's wholesale channels or retail channels. So these, these are more for the consumer brands themselves. Uh, and, and it actually uh, helps to improve their image and their product line and the perception out in the marketplace. Uh, so th there's lots of different ways to quote-unquote skin the cat, but it all comes down to what's right for that brand and for that company. I, I always love uh, the idea and the discussion and the thought uh, centered around expanding beyond the United States, because I I, I do believe, and this is uh, the numbers really back this up, that American retailers in particular are behind the curve uh, when you compare it to uh, all different types of you know retailers from Europe and from Asia that have uh, had no problems expanding beyond their home borders and doing so quite successfully, including here in the United States, uh, and and I think that. You know, there's not enough U.S. retailers that are leveraging their brand and leveraging the demand for their brand name all around the world. You know, there's lots of possibilities and lots of potential, uh, but of course, expanding into new markets, especially if your, you know, e-commerce platform isn't really tailored for translations, um, you know, that, that can be, uh, you know, that can be an issue. So, you know, whether it's understanding what channels they want to expand in, uh, and understanding what the cost implications of, of, of those new channels would be, in addition to what are the implications from really you know, selling and marketing their goods and continuing to do so in, the, in a similar manner. But it's also even things like looking at their e-commerce platform. 
you know, is their current website really tailored towards translating into other languages? You know, if you go from English to German, for example, you double the number of characters that you require. You know, mm -hmm. is that going to hit the character limit for the descriptions if you do a blanket translation? Are you doing currency uh, conversions to culture, which is different than just doing an automatic currency conversion, which you want to try to do at least once a night, if not uh, faster, as some UK retailers found out recently as the, uh, the British pound sterling lost a, a lot of value uh, right after the Brexit vote. And uh, a lot of retailers that weren't hedging their currencies enough uh, ended up uh, getting caught in the tailwinds of, uh, of, a, of a minor shock to, to their currency in the global markets. If you take that out of the equation, if you even look at it to currency conversion to culture, you know, that's where, you know, the nuance of global e-commerce becomes magnified. And I'll give you an example. If you are a European retailer and you are selling goods into the U.S., it will seem weird for us if we go to that website. And even if we're looking for that, you know, let's say it's a designer scarf from France, let's say. But if it's a scarf, if the price is, uh, you know, we'll say $34.32, it just it doesn't seem right because to our culture right. and what we're used to um, that there's just something off about that. Uh, and you talk about abandonment rates, you know, people abandoning a shopping cart, you know, that those numbers go through the roof. But if you have uh, automatic co conversion to the culture and then all of a sudden it becomes thirty-four dollars and ninety-nine cents USD, and then hey, that looks interesting and that looks like something. Yes, I'm I'm accustomed. To, uh, to you know, to, to clicking on and uh, checking out, uh, and uh, you know, ultimately uh, reducing the abandonment of the checkout process. So it's all those little things, you know, that really uh, can can make or break uh, a global expansion strategy. But but you know, some retailers that are looking at omni-channel uh, expansion aren't even looking beyond the U.S. borders because there are so many other channels to consider and talk uh, talk about. That's fascinating. Now, for companies that are going to pursue that global expansion. We do have a term for that expectation. We call it supply chain impatience here. But is there a formula for prioritizing markets and channels that they should go after, keeping in mind all of those little things that go into expanding truly global? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think the, the, the formula probably is not the same, but there are a few constants, I think, for, for any retailer. And that is not going too fast and doing it in a sustainable way. And and sometimes you, you might be surprised at maybe what markets will be easier to kind of put your toe in the water. You know, a lot of people might think of Canada because they're right next door and they're English speaking. Uh, but they also have a lot of requirements uh, legally and uh, from a consumer behavior standpoint, the expectation that things would also be in French. Um, and of course, you've got Mexico as well, south of the border. And then perhaps you have Europe, especially the United Kingdom. Um, but one of the countries that we like to talk to retailers about uh, right out the gate is Australia. Australia has the highest de minimis amongst any country all around the world, which basically means this. If you're shipping e-commerce uh, items and goods and orders into Australia, as long as each individual order is below $1,000, basically, you don't have to pay any duties. That is a, a very compelling case. For, for any retailer to at least put their toe in the water with some type of an international expansion strategy just to see 
you know, uh, how, how their market and how their goods might serve in other markets. You know, Australia has one of the highest percentages of penetration of e-commerce as a percentage of total sales. Uh, and uh, with a combination of that in an English-speaking country uh, and a relatively high de minimis compared to other countries, uh, becomes that becomes a formula for uh, success for any retailer that's looking to just uh, try it out, try out their currency conversions before they try out translations, for example, trying to figure out how the, the cultural conversion uh, works. When you look at okay, well, it's all you know halfway around the world. What about this expectation of very fast delivery? Uh, you know, we we don't want to uh, break the bank shipping our goods over there. But you'd be surprised, and this is what we like to say uh, and talk to uh, retailers about. But you'd be surprised what type of creative solutions you can find uh, in, instead of just working with an integrator and just sending out items partial at a time. Um, there are some pretty interesting solutions that folks like like ourselves, uh, like Seco, bring to the market and helping uh, retailers bundle their orders uh, and uh, and get them into countries in bulk and, and doing some uh, inject partial injections, uh, but, but instead of zone skipping within the U.S., you're zone skipping all around the world. Um, and that's where it can get really uh, interesting and really fun. So once that new market has initiated, there's all of those other little things that you have to deal with local customer service, fielding calls, emails, and all that. What kind of steps do companies have to take to make sure that gets up and running quickly and works efficiently for the new retailer? No, that, that's a, a great point right there. It all has to do with the ability to scale. You know, finding the right partners that can help you scale at the pace that you need to scale at uh, and doing so in, in a cost-effective and in many ways, hopefully, a transactional way so that, uh, you know, you've got partners um, and you need to look for partners that can globally scale with your needs and, and that can understand what the global implications of, you know, your new business strategy is. And, and that's where a lot of retailers, especially American companies, uh, manufacturers as well, kind of get hung up because, again, you have a lot of American companies that may not understand the nuances and uh, the implications of global expansion. So, you know, th this is something that we, we talk to a lot of companies about, you know, working with partners that, for example, have facilities in countries around the world that understand the local uh, customs regulations in order to make sure that the goods don't get held up at customs, which can uh, cause its own set of nightmares because then you might actually have to fly the goods all the way back, put them on another flight, you know, and get them back all the way around the world. Um, and that can truly be, you know, cost prohibitive. But then you've also got the call center implication. You absolutely hit the nail on the head. You know, what languages uh, do you need to be able to scale into? And, you know, do you have the right partner to help you out in that endeavor? And are all of those dots uh, linked within, you know, your customer's supply chain? And that's where you look at, you know, if you're a retailer, if you have uh, individuals coming to your website, uh, you have the data on those individuals. Is that the same address that you're shipping to? You know, is that the same phone number that uh, your call center is reaching out to to follow up? And, you know, those data points and, and making sure everyone's kind of playing on the same sheet, this is where you get into a lot of uh, discussions and conversations around uh, integrating uh, platforms, uh, global platforms for managing uh, the entire customer relationship from marketing and digital marketing uh, all the way to through customer service through uh, sales, uh, e-commerce on the, on the website, 
uh, and then of course uh, all the way back uh, back through to uh, you know invoicing, etc. The entire life cycle of, a, of, a, of an order from beginning to end, and then of course hopefully repeat is are all those data points connected in such a way that you can leverage that information the best to not only service your client uh, and, and so that when they call in the next time, uh, not only do you speak their language, uh, and hopefully you do and you've, you set yourself up for that culturally appropriate expansion strategy, but maybe you also know who they are the minute they call because you've got the intelligence uh, behind all your systems to be able to help you do that. Or if uh, someone wants to order an item, but maybe it's out of stock from your e-commerce DC, but it's available at the store that's maybe 10 miles away. Are your systems capable uh, and sufficient enough to to, to reroute that uh, fulfillment request from DC to store? And can you fulfill from your store and deplete that inventory from your point of sale system that goes back to your WMS? You know, this is where we circle that conversation right back to technology. Uh, and that's where, again, you know, that, that it's both frightening and absolutely uh, awe-inspiring at the same time. Let's go right into that technology discussion then. The supply chain industry is very susceptible to disruption as that technology continues to evolve. We've got autonomous trucks, we've got drones, robots, AI, I don't know, teleporters. <laughs> All of these things really could shake up the, the way things are done. How do you think could. some of those technologies... Yes, could, exactly. So how do you think some of those technologies could affect the industry? Uh, and have you looked ahead? Are you prepared for those potential disruptors? Yeah, well, let's start with drones, because that seems to be, you know, in everyone's minds, because you start, you see all these kind of, uh, you know, videos out there of integrators testing them out. As, as, a, as a local legislator likes to remind me, every once in a while, uh, they're still illegal. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, still a, there's still a lot of issues that need to be worked through uh, and before, you know, you start to see drones delivering pizzas to your house. Um, there's a whole lot of privacy concerns, uh, security, safety, that have really yet to be fleshed out. And, and I think it's going to be, you know, a little bit longer until we figure that one out. And, you know, five years ago, I would have said, Absolutely, drones will be everywhere, and you'll never have self-driving cars. I think probably now it's the reverse. They've gone so far in their technology as it relates to uh, uh, self-driving cars that you know it really is. Uh, you, you might start to see a lot of them roll out in mass uh, in, in the very near future before you see drones, because I think anytime you got something flying through the air, once you get the FCC involved. Once you get, uh, you know, individuals that are concerned for their privacy and for their safety and security, um, uh, more so than they would have ever uh, been uh, with with a, with a car that probably has a better driving record than you, as we've seen with uh, some of these tryouts. I mean, I see for drones in particular the biggest benefit in in how it will impact change in global supply chains in the near future is not going to be delivering pizzas to your home. I think that would, that's a ways off um, mm -hmm. if we ever get there, in fact. Uh, but where I, I do see it changing uh, supply chains is, number one, in disaster relief. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you know, when you look at drought-stricken areas, famine, uh, earthquakes, war-torn areas, being able to get the, the right goods um, to the right villages and towns and people when they need it, and understanding, you know, uh, the conditions of passable and impassable roads uh, before you get your trucks there uh, into some of these more remote locations. I mean, that's going to have a huge impact on lives. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely, and aid and relief and the logistics that support those efforts. So that's number one. Number two, yeah, there, there's people that still live in some very remote areas, and they may have electricity and the internet and everything. And uh, but you know, it's just uh, if you're in a Channel Island, for example, off of Maine, mm-hmm. or if you're living up in the Northwest Territories, up in uh, Canada, it, it can be difficult, uh, right, to get uh, you know the latest uh, e-commerce goes to your home or, or buying milk uh, under $10 a gallon. I mean, it, it's just the supply and demand. But drones can actually really, truly help to uh, level the playing field for folks that uh, you know live far away from population centers uh, and where there can be, where I think the FCCs of the world, not just the U.S., but of the world, can certainly be a lot more amenable to these types of drone deliveries. I think the number three, and this is something you know we're even looking at, is the ability of the drone within a warehouse to help complement your order picking process. So within the walls of a warehouse, you know, understanding how you can leverage, you know, n- not just your shelves but also, you know, the, the height, right? So you, you, in a typical warehouse, you have your higher turn items down towards the bottom, right? Because that's where the people are. And then you get on the forklift, so you go up, and you start to go after the uh, lower velocity goods that are more palletized probably and, and not, not in smaller boxes to pick out each. The ubiquity of, of drone technology to assist in the order picking process could, could truly make you know, warehouses more efficient much sooner, I think, within the warehouse than outside of the warehouse and having, uh, again, those famous pizzas being delivered to your home, at least not in the state of Illinois uh, and I don't think a lot of other states. Are they, are they really going to ever figure out and come to an agreement on exactly how these can be commercially and legally viable as, as, uh, as flying objects rapidly yeah. uh, through yeah. the lower uh, atmosphere uh, right above your home? Not that I'm opposed to having a pizza delivered by drone. I think that'd be great. Hey, if it cuts you know, 20 minutes off the delivery, <laughs> I think anyone would be open to the possibility, right? You know, yeah. We've all been there. Uh, right. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, it's a cost-benefit analysis, right? And, uh, you know, there, there's lots of uh, folks on either side of the aisle, truly. It's not a – it's kind of a bipartisan concern about, uh, um, you know, whether it's privacy, security, safety. You know, I, I just – I don't – I see it more of a – not a technology hurdle. It's more of – it's going to be, a, um, I guess, a bureaucratic or legal hurdle, uh, more so than some of the other technologies. Speaking of that bureaucracy with the new administration in place uh, and a promise to look into strengthening the infrastructure of the, the country, do you think there's anything that will come of that that will affect the logistics industry? Well, uh, we certainly hope so. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the infrastructure of the United States can certainly use a little bit more attention and a little bit more investment because, and that's what it truly is, uh, an investment in our future, laying the groundwork. You know, when you have bridges and roads that are in disrepair, um, that has uh, a negative effect on, on, on the economy. When you have tires getting blown out, when you have trucks on the side of the road, you know, when you have highways that flood out easily because of uh, lack of good drainage that, that stops traffic in an entire metro area. You have bridges collapse completely, like what happened in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are real, you know, these are real concerns and real issues. Regardless of what anyone may think of um, the Trump administration, these are these are real life issues 
that are truly, uh, you know, another issue I think that is absolutely bipartisan. Whether it's our airports, uh, whether it's our railroads, whether it's our highways, and most importantly, maybe in some cases, our ports, there's definitely some room for improvement. And, you know, we are, uh, we are uh, I guess, waiting further news and details, as I think everyone else is, on what this could mean from a policy standpoint, because, uh, you know, speeches uh, don't always turn into laws or, or uh, omnibus bills, but uh, very oftentimes they do, especially within the first 100 days or first year of office. So we're looking forward, cautiously optimistic that uh, um, some, some attention is going to be paid to the uh, infrastructure in the United States, uh, and, uh, and it will do, I think, nothing but help to, uh, to make the economy uh, a buzz a little bit more, keep it humming. Great. And one final question then. For U.S. retailers that are going to push globally, what's the smartest omni-channel logistics and transportation approach to achieve that steady and sustainable growth? Take your markets and stick with those and get established and, and kind of get the tweaks you know, figured out and the kinks figured out first before you go on to your next venture and your next channel and your next challenge. I think when you look at it from the standpoint of, uh, you know, some some startups and some retailers say, you know, it's a, it's all a matter of when, uh, it's, it's not when you say yes, it's when you say no. That can actually be the most impactful for successful growth. Um, and I think that's doubly the case when looking at expanding globally. Stick with a few markets at a time and do so at, at a pace that, that, that you, you feel will be right. Uh, because in some cases, if you want to expand into Australia, which, again, we, we, that, that is a great market for a lot of companies to look at because you've got also New Zealand, you've got Singapore, Malaysia, and then, of course, uh, not, not too far away is Hong Kong, and, and that just sets yourself up to potentially look at mainland China, although it's not for everyone, at least not in the way that we understand it because uh, the, the marketplaces and other platforms that are out there are so different, but at least you're in that region. Uh, and you can establish a foothold in the region. But then you also have to look at a retail strategy, uh, retail footprint, um, staffing. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of legal uh, hurdles and, 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 and hoops to jump through. And doing so all at the right pace uh, can actually set yourself up for a more sustainable, more like a hockey stick growth rate in the future so that then you can use these places like Australia um, like the United Kingdom or Ireland as, as really the jumping off points uh, to, uh, to, to take on other, other countries. You know, uh, going after China just because it has a, a billion people and a middle class the size of the entire population of the United States, you know, those are great numbers to talk about, but, you know, it can be a, a very tricky puzzle to solve, especially as the first place you want to expand into. It's always better to start off with some of these other markets first and then see how how your systems uh, are, are, are stressed and, and how they work, how they don't work, uh, and then figuring out, again, like I said before, the kinks before looking at other markets. Brian, this has been a fascinating look at the industry. Some great insights. Thank you so much for sitting with us today. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate the time. Inbound Logistics Magazine is the information leader in supply chain and logistics management. Start your free print and digital subscription today by visiting bit.ly slash getil. That's bit.ly slash get underscore il 
and stay ahead of the 3PL game. The Inbound Logistics Podcast is a production of Inbound Logistics Magazine. For the most in-depth information around logistics, transportation, and supply chain practices, get your free print and digital subscription at inboundlogistics.com slash subscribe. Connect with us via LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for the most current developments in the industry. All of these links will be available in the show notes. If you'd like to leave us some feedback or have a topic you'd like to see covered in a future episode, leave us an email at podcast at inboundlogistics.com. I'm your host, Jeff Vita. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time here on the Inbound Logistics Podcast.